Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 19, Britannia's Emperor. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Laura, Victoria, and Travis for contributing already. Now, where were we? Oh, yes. Commodus was the sole emperor, though really, Perennis was the one running things for most of his early reign. And actually, you know, sometimes I wonder what would have happened if Varus didn't die. Certainly, it would have prevented Marcus from naming Commodus as co-emperor. And maybe Varus would have been able to talk Marcus out of naming Commodus as his heir at all. Anyway, these are the things I ponder from time to time. But Varus did die, and Commodus did become the co-emperor, and then he became the sole emperor. And he was kind of lazy, so he left much of his rule to the Praetorian prefect, Perennis. And the legions of Britannia were getting rowdy at the thought of this, especially since many of Perennis's new laws offended them. And I think that's about where we left off. So the legions tried to declare their own legate, Priscus, as emperor. But Priscus was having none of it. And this actually was probably a smart move on Priscus's part. I mean, there's few ways you can get killed faster than declaring yourself as the emperor when there's actually another emperor sitting in Rome who's holding almost complete and total power. So Priscus said, no, guys, I'm not going to do that. And so the British legions did the next best thing. They sent 1,500 soldiers to Rome to confront Commodus over the issue of Perennis. But they gave Commodus an easy out. They said that Perennis was plotting to overthrow him. And Commodus, seeing that he could very easily be killed by the enraged legions, handed Perennis over to them. And Perennis was subsequently lynched. The British unit satisfied with his outcome, returned to Britannia with a new governor, Publius Helvetius Pertinax. Pertinax was actually retired when the emperor called, but when the emperor calls you, you have to answer. And besides, he absolutely hated Perennis, since it was Perennis who had actually forced him into retirement in the first place. So Pertinax was back, Perennis was dead, the emperor was back in charge, and the British troops were returning to Britannia with their new governor. Now, upon meeting Pertinax, the ringleaders of the prior British mutiny, the one that tried to set Priscus up as emperor, said, God, this guy would make an even better emperor. Or they might have thought, hey, if we offer this guy the title of emperor, maybe he's not going to punish us. Regardless of the reason, they tried to set Pertinax up as the new emperor. And Pertinax had the same reaction to it that Priscus did. He said, no, but he went an extra step on top of that. He punished the ringleaders and their followers severely. In fact, his punishments and discipline were so extreme that the British legions, already wild and woolly, made good on their reputation for being mutinous and turned on Pertinax, probably killing his bodyguards and leaving Pertinax for dead. Ah, rookie mistake, guys. If you're going to mutiny against a governor who remains loyal to the emperor, you can't just leave him for dead and hope that nature takes its course. You have to finish him off. But they didn't. They just left him for dead. And guess what? Nature didn't take its course. Pertinax recovered. 
And if the legions thought that he was too harsh before, you can only imagine how they felt now. This is actually a common story in our history. Someone botches a murder attempt, or simply kills the allies and friends of the target, and then the target comes back with a vengeance. A kind of Charles Bronson vengeance. And that's what happened here. Pertinax, taking cues from James Brown, said, You better get ready for the big payback. But here's the thing. Pertinax didn't take the long view of things. He might have had some soldiers loyal to him, and to the emperor, and I'm sure many of the soldiers of Britannia were appalled by the attack upon Pertinax and his retinue. But people have short memories, especially when they're witness to Pertinax's brand of discipline. They soon forgot their shock at the attack on the governor, and instead were outraged by his brutality and cruelty. The legions became increasingly more hostile to him. And as we know from prior episodes, a hostile legion is a dangerous thing. So he was forced to resign in 187. And honestly, it's surprising that he survived, considering how many of his predecessors didn't. And, you know, what a ruthless man he was. But maybe the legions thought that he simply couldn't be killed, since their first attempt on his life failed so miserably. Who knows? Anyway, yet another governor has been kicked out of our rebellious little island. Pertinax's replacement is not known, but by the end of 192, that replacement was replaced by Decimus Claudius Albinus. Governor Albinus was an aristocrat from North Africa, but the real interesting part of this story isn't happening in Britannia, but rather in Rome. We haven't really spoken too much about Commodus, other than, you know, to mention how worthless he was, so why don't we fix that? Dio who was a witness to Commodus, described him as, quote, not naturally wicked, but, on the contrary, as guileless as any man that ever lived. His great simplicity, however, together with his cowardice, made him the slave of his companions, and it was through them that he, at first, out of ignorance, missed the better life, and then was led into lustful and cruel habits, which soon became second nature, end quote. So Commodus was becoming increasingly more cruel and insane. And now he decided he would be both emperor and gladiator. He fought in the arena, which the public found scandalous. And soon rumors were rampant that he wasn't even Marcus Aurelius' son, but rather he was the bastard of a gladiator. And to make matters worse, his fights weren't even fair. He would often arrange to fight wounded men, or amputees, or ostriches, or giraffes. Ostriches and giraffes? Does a giraffe even have like any kind of self-defense mechanism, or do they just kind of lope around awkwardly and you know make faces with those long lips? I mean, really, dude, why kill a giraffe? But he was kind of a coward, so I guess that explains it. He also tried to exterminate an entire Roman noble house, arrange for the deaths of his enemies, or just wealthy contemporaries, and threaten the lives of senators. And meanwhile, he was also assuming the title of, quote, our lord. He really was just awful. And now he was convinced that he was Hercules reincarnated. Yep, he thought he was Hercules. And he wanted to prove this by being both emperor and an invincible gladiator in the arena on January 1st, 193. That seemed to be the last straw. Rome had had enough of this clown, 
and Commodus's Praetorium Prefect arranged for his assassination. On the eve of his Herculean combat, Commodus's food was poisoned by his concubine. But rather than killing the emperor, it merely made him violently ill. So Narcissus, the emperor's wrestling partner, was sent in and strangled Commodus to death in either his bathtub or bed. Sources are a bit confused on that. Rome was finally free of Commodus, and the Praetorium Prefect proclaimed a new emperor. And guess who that was? Pertinax. And all throughout Britannia, legionaries were probably saying, Oh, hell no! But luckily for Britannia and those legionaries, pretty soon most of the empire was in agreement with them. Rome quickly learned what the British legions already knew, that Pertinax lacked subtlety, patience, and temperance. He immediately swept in and tried to elevate the Senate and restrain the power of the Praetorian Guard. You know, that's a pretty foolish move when you think about it. I mean, your predecessor was killed by a Praetorian conspiracy. So they already have blood on their hands. Purple blood. They're just fine with killing emperors. And you try and restrain their power? I'm sure it became as a complete surprise when, you know, 193, which is the same year, that same Praetorian prefect arranged for Pertinax's death. So now we have two emperors dead. Claudius and Pertinax. And the British legions probably cheered. And then the Praetorian Guard did something that probably destroyed any enthusiasm held by the legions. And frankly, something that's still shocking even today. They put the empire up for auction. And in the end, Senator Didius Julianus was the highest bidder. Can you imagine if that happened today? If Warren Buffett or the Koch brothers or some other incredibly wealthy person just bought the country? I bet there would be more than a few outraged people. Well, that was the same in Rome. The legions of Pannonia had had enough and proclaimed Septimus Severus, a North African, as emperor. The legions in Syria declared Pessinius Niger as emperor. And the legions of Britannia declared Clodius Albinus, the governor we spoke of earlier, as emperor. And incidentally, we don't know if a new governor of Britannia was appointed during this period. So we have four emperors and only one empire. This can't end well. Severus made the first move. He marched on Italy, which led the Praetorians, who installed Julianus, to declare it for Severus, which in turn led the Senate to condemn Julianus, which in turn led to Julianus being murdered in the palace. Three emperors down. Now keep in mind, this is only six months after Commodus was murdered by the Praetorians. They were going through emperors at a rate of one every other month. And now the fourth emperor, Severus, had control of the central government, as well as his rather impressive army. But there still were two other emperors out there, and Severus was smart enough to know that he couldn't fight them both. And he certainly couldn't trust the Praetorian guard. If his enemies united, the Praetorians would just abandon him, and he'd be killed, either by the Praetorians, which actually is pretty likely, or by the other emperors and their armies. So Severus offered Albinus of the British legions the title of Caesar. Now Albinus would be a junior emperor, serving beneath Severus, but he still would be an emperor. 
and persuaded by this, Albinus accepted. At this point, by the way, Albinus's capital might well have been in London. It does seem from the archaeological record that London had quite a bit of cash infused into it at around this point. And that might have been due to imperial largesse. So this really could be the first time that London really took center stage in world politics. Anyway, so the two emperors united, and they turned on the Syrian legions and their emperor, Niger. Within a year, the legions had clashed against Niger's army in the east and killed him. The civil war was over. But there was a problem for Severus. He had to share power with this other emperor, Albinus, and that didn't sit with him well at all. And of course, Albinus wasn't content to be a junior emperor. He wanted to be the senior emperor, something that Severus was vehemently against. And by 196, just two years after the end of the Civil War, everything fell apart. According to Herodian, Severus dispatched agents to assassinate Albinus, but they were unsuccessful. Albinus was caught unawares, but he moved quickly anyways and rushed to Gaul, where his support was strong. Meanwhile, the Senate, under orders from Severus, pronounced Albinus as a public enemy. Emperor Severus then marched on Gaul, seeking to bring down his former co-emperor. The first contact was between Albinus and a Severan commander named Lupus, who we think actually was Virius Lupus, who would later become a governor of Britannia. Albinus was successful, and things were looking good for the rebel emperor. But the next year, in 197, there was a massive battle between the two forces at Lyon. Dio claims that there are 150,000 men on each side. That sounds like a bit of an exaggeration. After all, the whole army of Britannia was scarcely more than 50,000. So it's doubtful that each side really had 150,000 soldiers. And we really don't know anything about the composition of those forces. Did Albinus bring his British legions with him? Did he bring the auxiliaries from Britannia? Who did he leave behind? It seems unlikely that he'd take the entire army with him and just leave Britannia to the tender mercies of the northerners. It seems that at least small legionary cadres would be left behind. But honestly, we don't know much of anything about the composition of his forces though it probably was still a pretty big battle. And it probably did involve the British armies, as well as a substantial number of troops from the continent. After all, we do know that Albinus had the support of at least one Spanish legion and probably the Rhine armies as well. But as far as what was taken and left behind of Britannia, we just don't know that. Now, of course, taking all these troops from Britannia, if he did take them all from Britannia, couldn't have been without consequences, could it? It was long thought that when Albinus brought the British forces to the continent, that there was a large-scale invasion from the north. Scholars would point to the repairs later made to Hadrian's Wall as evidence of this. But that theory is no longer in favor, as there are inscriptions and archaeological evidence to the contrary, and it seems that the repairs on Hadrian's Wall were done because it was, well, old, and repeatedly abandoned. So for the most part, it does seem like Britannia wouldn't have felt much of the chaos of the Civil War that the rest of the Empire felt. For once, living in Britannia was actually a kind of cushy situation. And I mean, hell, you get your own emperor. Anyway, so Albinus took his forces from Britannia, 
and went to the continent and met with the army of Severus. And what followed was a pitched battle between these two titanic forces. The tides of battle shifted rapidly, but ultimately, after a long and hard-fought battle, the fortunes of war came to favor Severus. We don't know whether Albinus was killed or whether he committed suicide, but ultimately he did not survive the battle. The British emperor, though he was actually North African, had been defeated. The Civil War was over. Okay, we're going to stop right there. I realized that this episode had a lot of Roman intrigue and whatnot, but it did have a direct relationship to Britannia. I mean, we have two emperors who were former governors of Britannia, one with quite a vendetta against Britannia. So I really needed to tell the story, and you really couldn't tell it from just the perspective of Britannia, because really in Britannia, not much changed. They just kind of were keeping on, keeping on. There wasn't much going on on the island itself. Everything was happening on the continent. But next week, we're going to be talking about what happened following the Civil War. And actually, there's a lot that went on following the Civil War. Severus had a lot to do with what was going on in Britannia. And so we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about Virius Lupus, who was the governor of Britannia, the guy who was defeated uh, initially by Clodius Albinus, the British emperor. Uh, We're going to be talking about a bunch of stuff like that, so it should be a lot of fun. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please go ahead and check us out on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash British History. If you click the like button, you'll get updates on your Facebook page. You can also go over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, or you can just email me directly at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.